The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 36. Cleared from that fire, went to this next one, and uh, we were the last arriving unit on the first alarm, first arriving unit on the second alarm, right in that space of transition. And it was, uh, the sun was coming up and it was in a, in a beach part of San Diego and it was a real tough spot for everyone to get to. They had fought a lot of traffic to get, get to that spot and they had a real tough time getting water to the fire. And so when we got there, the battalion chief said, hey, we have people trapped, go for a rescue. What's up and thanks for listening in. My guest today is Kevin Easley. He is a fire captain out in San Diego. More specifically, he's a fire captain on a technical rescue unit. We're going to talk about what that is in today's episode. He is also the host of Tier 1 Talks podcast. You can listen to that wherever you get your podcast. Today's episode is a slight departure from the normal aviation theme that we tend to talk about, but I think you're going to hang around and listen to it because Kevin has a lot of experience. He's seen and done a lot of things in his years, and there's definitely a lot to take away from here. So stay tuned to the episode. But before we get rolling, a couple admin notes. Acronyms. We use a lot of acronyms in the military. I am absolutely guilty of using acronyms on this podcast. I don't know if there's any other way to communicate some of the things we do. I try and capture those and explain what they are, but I am definitely not that great at doing it. So what I've done over on theafterburnpodcast.com, again, that's theafterburnpodcast.com, there's a new blog section. The first post up there is about acronyms. It is definitely not all-encompassing, but I've tried to capture a lot of the acronyms that are typically used in this podcast. It is something that will grow and evolve over time. So if you have a question or want to check something out, go over to theafterburnpodcast.com. Check out the blog on acronyms. If I miss something or you have a question about something, drop it in the comments and I'll get back to you. And as always, I would like to thank my Patreon supporters. You guys and gals are helping the podcast grow. So I appreciate you supporting the podcast. If you're interested in supporting the podcast as well, you can find your way over to Patreon via the afterburnpodcast.com. I got a link up there. It's pretty easy to follow there. And finally, before we get rolling to the podcast, I'd like to thank everyone who's gone over to iTunes and dropped a rating review or really wherever you listen to your podcast. 
iTunes is definitely the biggest. But if you haven't done so and you're looking just to help the podcast out just a little bit, drop a five-star review, leave a comment, even if it's just a couple words, that helps the podcast reach more people and help this podcast grow. So with that being said, let's get into the episode with Kevin. Cool. Kevin, thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. Happy to have you on here. It'll be uh, cool to talk about your background, what you're doing, and just share your life experience because it's slightly different than most people I've had on the podcast thus far. Can you just give everyone kind of the 60 second elevator pitch of who you are and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Kevin Easley and uh, I'm 51 years old, uh, married well over 20 years now, uh, father of four children. Uh, very blessed. I have four kids. I live in San Diego. Um, I work for the San Diego City Fire Department. And for the last seven years, I've been a captain uh, in that. Well, I've been a captain for 12 years. And for the last seven years, I've been a captain at the technical rescue team riding on a heavy rescue, doing all the all the fun stuff that you see on TV. People uh, like to think that every firefighter, every fire department does the stuff that they see on Chicago Fire or, or uh, that, that TV show, 911. Uh, most of that really special stuff, the high angle stuff, the confined space, the swift water, a uh, lot of vehicle, heavy vehicle extrication, all that stuff. That's normally done by the technical rescue teams around the country. And that's what I've been doing the last seven years. Um, on the side of that, uh, about three years ago, I started uh, getting uh, getting rid of some of my mental baggage inside uh, an anonymous Instagram page. I, I created a uh, Instagram page called Tier One Athletes, and I was just dumping my headspace out, uh, cleaning out, doing some you know, getting rid of the dirty laundry, folding stuff up, and uh, I was doing it anonymously. And at the same time, I was putting down a lot of my workouts that I was doing. Uh, putting, putting in there how I found a way to train. Uh, I'm 51 years old. I'm turning 52 in August. It's hard to believe. And I've been doing this profession for 30 years. Uh, what I found was it's very hard uh, as a 51, 52-year-old guy to hang with the uh, you know, 25 to 35-year-old studs that are coming out and just, you know, they're still running their seven-minute miles and they're bench pressing 225 pounds as many times as they can. And you know, they're just specimens. And especially in the world I'm running in, a lot of the, a lot of the firefighters at the rescue company, they're, they're just, you know, they're, they're war horses. And to, to try to maintain respect with them and stay with them, hang at their level, I was, I created my own workout system, started publishing that. Now, here I am a couple years later and uh, have almost 5,000 followers on that Instagram page. Uh, I've ended up meeting a ton of people like-minded people like yourself, John, um, and have had the opportunity to, a year ago, I started a podcast. I'm, I'm only 11 episodes in, into it, but doing the same thing you're doing. Uh, I, I felt blessed that I got to know people and I wanted to share those conversations with people that are out there following the Tier 1 Athletes page. So I created the Tier 1 Talks and that's, that's a podcast available on, on Spotify, Apple, pretty much everywhere, just, just like yours. I haven't put any video out on YouTube or anything yet, but, uh, that, that podcast is, is, uh, slowly taken off, but it's a lot of fun. People get to hear the conversations with people that, you know, they normally don't get a chance to talk to. And I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of amazing people and for them to share their experiences with people. So that's, that's who I am and where I am. 
we got we got a lot to unpack with that because just the technical rescue part of it like that's a whole episode that's a whole podcast series in itself so i'm gonna break that down but kind of backtracking a little bit with like where you started kind of getting into the public space because again that's something different for a guy in your profession it's something different i think for guys in my profession but for you we're saying hey i gotta unpack my headspace can you elaborate a little bit on to yeah what i mean what does a guy who is in the fire service for 30 years what do you got to unpack? I imagine there's a lot of stuff you've seen that's it's difficult to deal with and everyone deals with it differently. But yeah, what was kind of the genesis for there? Was there a tipping point for you? What was it? Um, absolutely. There was a tipping point. Um, in, in October of 2018, uh, my company, we had been, it was about in the morning, we'd been sent downtown for a structure fire in a restaurant. Ended up being a kitchen fire, no need for us there. And the battalion chief had seen, he said, hey, you you guys need to cut. There's a a structure fire busting. Sounds like it's going to go multiple alarms. Sounds like people are trapped and uh, you might as well get on the road. Um, We got on the road, cleared from that fire, went to this next one. And uh, we were the last arriving unit on the first alarm first arriving unit on the second alarm, right in that space of transition. And it was, uh, the sun was coming up and it was in a, in a beach part of San Diego. And it was a real tough spot for everyone to get to. They had fought a lot of traffic to get, get to that spot. And they had a real tough time getting water to the fire. And so when we got there, the battalion chief said, Hey, we have people trapped, go for a rescue. Um, it was a real strange building layout. People that uh, don't fight fire probably won't understand too much, but in layman's terms, you know, like we always call the front, the alpha side, the back is the Charlie side. And it, this was a taxpayer building, which is commercial on the bottom floor and above it, uh, re- residential. So it was a residential fire on the second floor with a third floor, uh, granny flat on the top. And the entrance was on the, uh, Charlie side, which is the back side and the fire engines and the ladder trucks were all on the front alpha side. And they were trying to stretch lines to get up the stairs on the back. When they did that, uh, the stretch was so long, they came up short. And so they, the nozzleman of the first nozzle was stuck in between first and second floor. And we passed them. Uh, my, my engineer, my two firefighters and I, and, and we were told to go for a rescue. We, we got there and this guy that, you know, we, he was, he was actually a relief, uh, rescue guy. And he saw us, he said, Hey, don't go. Like we can't get water up there. And one of my guys said, copy that. Yeah, we're going. He says, no, really, I can't get water up there. You're going up without a hose line. And my guy said, yeah, copy that. And we went. And that guy and I got to the second floor landing and my engineer and the other firefighter were, stayed on the second floor and uh, my, my firefighter partner and I, we went to the third floor. We went up a staircase that was actually burning, got up to the third floor, searched the granny flat. It had burned through, um, came down, zero visibility. And then we started searching aside. Long story short, uh, zero visibility, incredibly high heat. Um, th- this fire is actually, it's one of those fires, the video that's on Instagram, people find it. And, um, it's, uh, 
in the search, the, the way I had trained my crew to search is one guy would use our thermal imaging camera in one room and then the partner would go do a physical search of the room being watched by the uh, guy with the camera, always giving him a point of reference to come out when things got really bad. You know, so, so they could set off an alarm and flash a light and look at him and, and, and talk to him. Hey, you, you're coming right at me. Come on out. Come on out. You know, we can get out of there together. Well, one of the rooms that it was my turn to search without the camera, it was a bedroom and uh, it had like a, a fuller queen size bed in it. And I climbed up on that bed and uh, had reached as far underneath as I could, climbed up on top, felt the wall, got got out of the room. I called it clear. And as the captain, it's my responsibility to call the primary clear. And and I did. And I, and I said, we found nobody. And in the secondary search, you know, when the fire had been knocked down and, and uh, the, the visibility was better, uh, the secondary search was assigned to another company and, and they, they found a guy in there and they, they found him dead and uh, they brought him out CPR status. And it, uh, it, it ruined me. It, it took me to my knees and it was, uh, I want to say it was a lot of survivor guilt um, but I also felt like I had failed and it was, uh, it was an incredibly emotional feeling of, uh, I, I can't even put it all into, into words, but I felt like I had failed and I felt like I had actually killed someone that deserved to live. And that's the hard part is that, you know, like people talk about, uh, post-traumatic stress, a lot of those things. And I've done a lot of thinking about it. I've, I've seen, I've seen a lot of death in, in my career. Um, and a lot of people do. Um, but when you're trying to save someone and you fail, that's, I think those are the things that stick with you. you. You second guess yourself and you wonder if I had done something different, if I had gone left instead of going right, if I had gone faster, if I had done a shortcut, if I had trained harder, if I, there's so many variables that go into it. And you know, in, in that process of clearing out my headspace, I, I, I was fortunate that I was able to go to uh, counseling. We have counseling through our work. And I finally humbled myself enough to go to counseling. And I was able to write my head and realize that, that I was there to try to make an unfortunate event for that person better. Right. And it, it took some time of getting rid of the extreme ownership of his death of feeling like I made a bad call uh, to get to the point where I can say, I, I no longer feel like I killed that person. I don't go around saying I killed that person, it, but that was where my headspace was. And that's not fair to myself. It's not fair to my family. And, it, and it's not fair to that person. I, I did not do a violent act to that person to take their life. I was actually trying to remove them from that violent act and just, I was not successful. Um, but you know, me and my guys, we, we risked everything to try to give that person a chance. It just did not work out. So counseling, which I think is the one thing now that, you know, I hear a lot of guys talking about openly, which I think is huge because the situation you described there, I mean, you got handed a shit sandwich, right? The best, I mean, the joke in the flying world, at least the fighter world, the supervisor of flying, he's the pilot who's sitting in the tower. The best you're going to do is break even, but most likely everyone's going to be mad at you. 
because you're there purely when everything goes wrong. Um, and that's, that's apples and oranges compared to your story, right? There are stories where it, it's much different. Maybe it's apples and apples, but, um, getting that counseling and reaching out, whether it be to, I mean, there are a lot of professionals out there and that's, that's, if you're in that headspace, that's where you need to go. But even to like the team, I imagine, you know, as a technical rescue unit, you guys are a close knit team. And I imagine on that team, everyone was struggling along the same lines or was that not the case? I don't know if everyone struggled along the same lines. I know they that they felt it. And I know when we came out that the, the battalion chief was making sure my company was good. The other guys, I, I don't know where they went with their journey. Uh, we did not we did not talk it up a whole lot. Um, and, you know, like you said, it's a small team. And it's a team of people who want to do something more and be something more. They're the people that they want to be called on to those unfortunate events and uh, go make things better. Um, very, very capable, very alpha, very aggressive people end up being on this team. And it's not un, un, uncommon for these people to uh, have multiple things going in their career, you know, being part of rescue, being part of hazmat, being part of the air operations program, part of being the SWAT team. It's just people reach out and they, they fill out their career full of adventure. They want to be at the point of conflict. That's basically who the people that go, end up at rescue are, the people who really want to be right at that point of conflict and try to make a significant difference. Um, you know, the, the thing, I, you know, every assignment I had, I lost – a friend or an acquaintance, you know, at, at some point in that assignment. So I think over the course of my you know, active duty time, it was like seven individuals were no longer with us for a variety of reasons. Um, to, you know, the last one was pyro on our deployment. That was probably the one that hit, I would it may it's not fair to say, but probably that, that was the one that was closest to home. You know, we were 20 pilots and to lose one right in the midst of a deployment you know, to me, it's interesting and everyone reacts differently. And like, you know, I, I mean, I had several opportunities, right. To kind of go through that process and then to watch other people go through that process. And yeah, I, I like, I don't know, like me internally, I struggle with like, what's the right feeling? What, how, you know, if I see, I, I see everyone react differently and I'm not, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, obviously I'm not very smart, but, um, it's a interesting place to be, right? And in this in this type of work, death, injury, trauma is part of it. And dealing with that and unpacking it so that you can be like you can't be a normal human being after it, right? Like there the or the new normal is something different than you were. No, you, you know, um, and that's something I, I just recently got asked and I was talking to my wife about it. We have a battalion chief, uh, that's in charge of our health and wellness program. And he reached out to me the other day and asked if I would share my journey with the people coming in. And you're a hundred percent right, John. Um, I think whether you're in fire, military, law enforcement, you're going to be exposed to a lot of tragedy. You're going to be exposed to a lot of death. Uh, you're going to be exposed to a lot of bad days. And 
I let the way I equate it is that, you, you know, you start off your life and you're wearing rose colored glasses and everything looks great and everything's cheery somewhere. Some at some point in time along your career, you end up getting this, uh, someone takes them off your face and they step on them and crush them. And they have a little bit of, you know, glass left in them. You pick them up, you put them on your face and you will never see the world the same as you saw it before. And I think they say the average person that's out there maybe sees one, one person not actually die, but actually one person dead in their life. And it may yep. be just a family member that may have died of a disease or uh, an illness or a sickness or of natural causes. And that, that may be it. And, you know, we, we, uh, that, Death is something that uh, when it becomes part of your norm and your normal life and you've seen more debt, like it, the problem is, is when you think what, what you're seeing is normal and it's not, um, yeah. you know, I, I just had a new guy join and I said, Hey, I, I just want you to make sure you, you need to go talk to your wife first and say, I'm, I'm going to change because you are. And, and uh, you need to make sure that like, she's okay with it because none of this is worth losing her over you have kids. So you need to make sure that the home is good, but you're going to see a lot of death. You're going to see people die in ways that people don't understand. And over my career, I, I mean, I've seen people burn to death, heard people burn to death, seen the aftermath of that. I've seen people get shot. I've seen people get stabbed. I've, uh, I, I don't want to traumatize listeners. I really don't. It's the, the, the things that I've experienced, they're horrible and they do come back. They, I don't, I don't have nightmares, but I do have uh, a cognizant awareness of avoiding areas that I notice that I'll drive away and not go to places where things have happened. Cause I just don't want to think about them because the, the, the actual proximity or the sights or the sounds will bring them back. And that is one of those things too, that interesting you know, point is like what you see the average, you know, what the person, the average person will see. You know, it was randomly Thanksgiving this year driving on I-20 and I was unfortunately right behind a semi truck that he tried to thread the needle uh, underneath a underpass, right? He fell asleep is my guess, just watching what happened, but he didn't, he did not survive it. It was a pretty gnarly and gruesome incident. And then that like makes me question myself, right? I was the first one up to the cab. You see it. I think about it to this day. I, I process things differently, I think, than most people. And Kevin, you're probably the same way And most people in this line of work. It affects you. I think about it. I also, it, it drives a lot of my decision-making when it comes to, I know you're saying avoiding areas, you know, to avoid memories to a certain extent that, but then also it is my calculus of decision-making of what I'm going to do in certain events and certain scenarios based upon that, right? It's not the, the golden ticket, but I I, oh. like, I find myself thinking about that and how I process it. And I've never talked to anyone about it, but to me, I'm, I'm curious about it uh, because those type of events are rare, right? Unless you're in your line of work and you're seeing it every single day. People have to deal with this stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it is. It, and, and, you know, it's... Um... It's, it's been my privilege to deal with that stuff for other people, um, to be there, to try to make a difference, to try to pe pull people out of those bad situations. 
But like you said, when you process it, it does change you. And unfortunately, with your wife and your children or your spouse, I should say, there are women involved in my career as well. With your spouse and children, your spouse and children will die, die a thousand deaths over your career because you'll see exactly what happened to someone the night before. And then, you know, case in point, I, I just recently had a vehicle rescue where uh, it was all kids. Everyone was under the age of 21. There were nine people involved. Two cars went head on, driver to driver, both going 60 miles an hour. Um, and we fought like hell to get the drivers out. Um, what, and they both ended up passing. And, and uh, the, the, the one that we had a lot of trouble getting out drives a Toyota Camry. And the next night, my daughter, who drives a Toyota Camry, who's 18, asked if she could stay out extra late. And, and I'll be honest, I, you know, predictable is preventable is what comes into your head. And when you've seen it time and time and time again, hey, you know, most of the people I've cut out of cars over my career have been after 10 o'clock at night. Of those, most are doing something they should not be doing. You know, yeah. They're breaking, breaking a law, breaking rule, common sense. They're, they're racing. They're in the wrong place. They're with the wrong people. Uh, they're doing the wrong thing. They're drinking. They're on drugs. They're high. They're drunk. It's always the same thing. And then uh, of that 10% that happens in the daytime, it's still people doing the wrong things. Alcohol is often involved, not as often, but it's you know, someone texting on their phone that drives under a semi, you know, that, that kind of thing. So when your kids go to do those things and they, you start seeing your children or your spouse uh, do the things that you've seen cause problems that it, it's, it, it's a horror, it's a horror that you, you just, you snap at and you just go, Hey, don't do that. And they, they don't understand why you're saying don't do that. But it, to you, it's personal. And to them, they just think like, what's wrong with this guy? You know? And it's, that I think that's the biggest part is that, you know, any normal human being, you know, you, you join a profession, whether it's military, law enforcement, fire service, and you're 20 years old and you're, you know, 20, 21, any, anywhere between 18 and 22, normally people try to start. And, you know, in our country, people say you're an adult at 18. Then they say you get an extra privilege of alcohol consumption at 21. And now you're a full-fledged adult. Well, who you are at that 21 is not going to be who you are at 30. And who you are at 30 is not going to be who you are at 40. And who you are at 40 is not going to be who you are at 50. And I, I know that because I look back and <laughs> I, I've changed over these five yeah. decades. And, and uh, but not only do you, does just time change you, but all these experiences change you. And so you, you end up having to um, take compass bearing checks on your relationships. And I did not do that for a long time. I did not do that in my marriage. I did not do that with my kids. And I was dealing with all this stuff in unhealthy ways. I was doing it in the classic, you know, type A guy, right? I, I was uh, suppressing, I was drowning all this stuff in alcohol and suppressing all of it with that. And then when I wanted to wake up, I drink coffee. And uh, at no point did I become a uh, quintessential alcoholic um, I've gone an incredible amount of time without drinking alcohol. Uh, I don't have to drink it, but at the time I was using it to self-medicate and all those things have negative effects on all your relationships. 
for going down that road and like using, you know, alcohol or not really doing the compass check, what made you want to do that compass check? What got you to say, Hey, I need to change things. Um, I think with that final event, I had, I started to overflow and, and, you know, that's, you know, without getting too personal on it, it, it was, um, I, I realized like I, I was thinking of harming myself and, uh, you know, it's, it's not okay. And, um, I mean, honestly, like, it's hard for me to believe I'm sitting here talking about it on this conversation, but I guess it's, it's part of my therapy of finally getting it out. It, it was, um, I was at the, at the darkest, worst part of my life. And, you know, from the outside looking in, everyone would think that my life was perfect. You know, I had a, I have a great profession where I make good money that has, it's a noble profession with respect that comes with it. I, I have this marriage to this beautiful woman with four amazing kids, you know, great house. Everything looks perfect on the outside. Problem was inside, I was dying inside. And, well, you're not the, I, I mean, but you're not the, you're not alone in that. You know I mean? I, I know three people, close friends throughout and family, you know, or tied to my family that have committed suicide in my lifetime. Um, and looking at it, I never would have imagined. In fact, the first instance of it is we were like, that's the last person we ever would have thought would have done that. Right. But everyone struggles with demons and everyone does handles it differently. So the fact you're sharing it, I think is huge because you're obviously, you are not the first person to have those thoughts. Right. And hopefully someone hears this and realize that, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel and it just requires a course correction. And I'm, you know, I haven't been there. Right. But I imagine it's a lot of work to climb out of that hole, but I think you can attest it's probably worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And, you know, it, and like you said, it, it, it is common. Um, it's common in the professions. Uh, I, I, I was just, I just recorded a podcast with a friend of mine, Jason Gardner, who was a SEAL. And he made 30 years and retired. And uh, he's part of uh, the Echelon Front Leadership Program. And w in, in our conversation, we were talking about it. And he had a really good point. Uh, you know, when your car's broken, you go to a mechanic. When, when your knee's dislocated, you go to an orthopedic surgeon. And th those are his exact words. You know, wh why do people think that they can self-medicate and handle everything on their own? You know, it's... You, at some point you have to realize, Hey, this isn't normal. It's bothering me a little bit. Or even if it's not bothering, you're just thinking about it. Why not go take your head and get a tune up, you know, talk yeah. to someone that actually knows what they're talking about, because you may think it doesn't bother you, but it will manifest at another point. Um, and I think that's one of the things that people don't tell people when they begin their careers that the, the, uh, a chronic exposure to acute events will have a, a, a culmination effect on you. And if you don't maintain it by somehow, you know, you can, you can put a graphic uh, description on it somehow of, you know, a rain barrel filling up with, you know, a, a, a torrential downpour or just a, you know, drizzle over years. Well, if you don't open that rain barrel at the bottom and let some of it out, eventually it's going to overflow. And that's where I had gotten to um, because I had just, you know, had the old school mentality of, oh, if it bothers you, make dark humor. 
uh, <laughs> you know, pick it, pick it someone else, make a joke out of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, drink, Hey, let's go drink in the morning. You know, let's, as soon as we get off, let's go hit, hit, you know, one of our local waterfront, you know, taverns. And, uh, you know, that, that does it work? No, it's like putting band-aids on head wounds. You know, it makes you feel good for a little bit, but yeah. it doesn't, doesn't actually solve the problem. That's what I think is good about all these kind of discussions that are coming out because, you know, we're rolling out of 20 years of continuous combat operations for a vast majority of this generation and whatever the next generation is and how we split it. But, you know, the point is the fact that, yeah, like it goes back to it. It's like, I don't know what the most complex human body part is, but I imagine the brain is probably it. And there's millions of data points and decisions that are being made and assumptions. And if you're not willing to give that a tune up when you're struggling and you're seeing bad stuff, either maybe it's a singular event, maybe it's multiple things, maybe it's things that happen to you. If you're not willing to invest and go get that checked out, you're doing yourself a disfavor. And again, it's like, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a head doctor, but no, it's probably worth it to go talk to one when you're dealing with you that. Know, absolutely. And you know, the other thing that I think people lose and where I lost it, and, and this is something that I think is kind of important. When I, when I first went, I minimized everything because I'm not a combat veteran. You know, I, I said, you know, I don't know why I'm here. I'm not a combat veteran. And uh, the, the person I was speaking to said, hey, you know, just so you know, a lot of people that serve in the military that end up with, uh, that have a stress, and I, I refuse to put the D on the end of post-traumatic stress. I, I refuse. So I, I won't be doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe in post-traumatic growth and identifying that, yes, something bad happened. Yes, it, I was part of it. I'm going to come out of it stronger. That's where I am. That's just my personal headspace at this point in my life. Um, but people who have these traumatic events, uh, often in the military, you know, they're in a four-year enlistment, four, six-year enlistment, and they get an exposure and it's not a, it's not a daily exposure and it's in a place that's overseas. And it may be one time, maybe 10 things that happened to them, one thing or 10 things, maybe 20 things, but it happened overseas more often than not. And they separate from service. They come home, they deal with it or don't. Um, and I'm not minimizing anything they do. I have an incredible amount of respect for all of our military veterans. But the thing that's not addressed with the fire service is fire service tends to be one of those abnormal careers where you, you work 30 years for the same agency and your war does not end. And most guys are probably working where they live, right? So when you're off work, you're going to that restaurant, driving through that intersection where you might've had a vehicle extrication or responded to some kind of medical emergency or fire, right? Sure. And, it, and it's not even just the, the traumatic events. It's, it's, the, uh, it, it, it's the grief of, if you ever hear a parent lose their child and you hear the, the wail of a mother that realizes their child has left life and is gone forever to eternity. That, that sound, you never forget that sound. And you, you don't forget that house that, that you went into. And, but the, you know, and, and the point I'm trying to make on that is there's 
for the most people, there's 30 years of those experiences all, all bound up. Now, the frequency is different for every individual in the fire department throughout the country, whether you're volunteer, which the vast majority of our fire service in this country is volunteer. And I have a tremendous respect for them because they're doing everything that we do without being compensated. They're doing it just out of their noble nature. Hats off to them. I don't think I would do what I do for free anymore. Everyone starts starts off saying they would, but when you start getting paychecks, it changes you. Yeah. Um, but you know, across the country, that you you know your first responders are for decades on end experiencing this stuff where they live, where they reside, with their neighbors, with their friends, and it it adds up. And thank God it's finally gotten uh, a, a little bit of recognition. And uh, you know, I think it was. 2018 or 19 was one of the years right around COVID. The fire service was actually losing more people to suicide than structure fire deaths. And it, and it, 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 it's, 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 a, it's the elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. But it's there. Um, and I know at one point too, like this is random, but like heart attacks were a big concern in the fire service. I'm sure they're still there, you know, because most Americans are not quite that fit. And you go into a structure fire, you're wearing all the gear, breathing oxygen or bringing, breathing air, yeah. like your heart rates up. That's a really strenuous time on the body. But between that and probably suicides, I got to imagine those were up there at the top. Yeah, it is. And you know, it's, um, as far as the, the, uh, cardiac events, that's something that for the most part is controllable. Uh, you know, you, you, you have a choice whether to be obese or not. You do. And people don't want to hear that. People say, oh, it's my, my nature. Oh, it's my genetics. No, it really comes down to a simple math equation. You want to, if you want to eat more, you got to move more. And yeah. um, I get made fun of all the time for that because, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm a chip addict at the fire station. I will eat a whole bag of chips at lunch. Uh, so like when they buy two bags for the, for the cruise, they always buy a third, you know, cause they know I'm going to eat too much. And, and I apologize. I, I probably owe an extra $5 a day in chow fund just for chips. Um, but I'll, I'll work out three times a day at work for that reason. I'll, I'll run five miles, uh, whether I get interrupted or not, I'll finish my, my five mile run. Um, I hit the weights first thing in the morning, right when I get in. And then often we do a, a a conditioning circuit of 20, 20 to 30 minutes as a crew in the afternoon. And that's, that's in addition to, you know, post-workout mobility. But, uh, my goal has always been that I'm not going to let the weight of my gear stop me from getting a chance to do good work. I'm not going to let my conditioning take me out of the game. And I, I saw a, a really great post, uh, I think it was put out by an Instagram page called fit to fight fire. And they're, they're great fitness guys and they're really focused on the fire service. And they said, uh, you know, nationwide, there's a big, big, uh, push to wear leather helmets. I've worn a leather helmet my entire career and it's a traditional thing. It's one of those 150 years of tradition, unimpeded by progress type things that the fire service does. You know, it's the American Ben Franklin leather helmet. Well, those, those helmets run anywhere between 700 to $900 now. And Jeez. they put out a poster of a guy working and you have to buy them yourself. The, the cities don't buy them for you. 
you have to buy your own leather helmet. So, so they put out a, a post that, uh, of a guy, you know, bent over on his knees, holding his, holding his knees with his bottle on, breathing hard through his mask. And it says, don't bring your five, don't put your $5 fitness underneath your $7 helmet, $700 helmet, <laughs> you know, and it, and it's yeah. so true that, uh, you know, that it, it changed our fitness is paramount in the fire service. If you don't want to be a liability, then you've got to work out and do everything you can to be an asset. Because if we have to stop because you can't go anymore, then you're stopping the team. It right. just comes comes down to that. So, and people are counting on you. That that's people on their worst day are counting on you to be able to rescue them, to save yep. them from from their horrible event. How how would you feel if somebody? I I have not had the opportunity, and I pray to God I never will. That I physically cannot uh, rescue someone because I'm exhausted. I kind of want to spin it around too and talk about technical rescue. I know we kind of we went down a rabbit hole or with that, which I think was which is good and a lot of value into it. But I want to paint too for those who really don't understand what technical rescue is. Like a major city like San Diego, I think the city of Atlanta has one technical rescue truck, and I might be wrong there, but it's one station. They got the technical rescue. And obviously, it's a crew there, but they're going to every structure fire, every complex rescue vehicle wreck that's nasty and gnarly but is san diego kind of the same uh yeah yeah we're we're built roughly the same um just recently uh unfortunately in my opinion we got taken off of every commercial fire Uh, we go to every multiple alarm fire and every high-rise fire now uh at one point we were going to every commercial fire that was not a house and it was a lot of cancels and it became very political, a lot of turnarounds. So people decided to take us off that response. I think that was a negative. But as far as what technical rescue is, that it, it's almost like a, another six to eight trades wound into just firefighting profession. You know, every firefighter in San Diego City is an EMT or a paramedic. So they have the EMS trade as it is. Then every firefighter, whether it and when I say firefighter, I mean everyone that's in the operational ranks, which we use the term firefighter for the backseat. And, and we use, we carry two of those on every rig. And then we have an engineer that drives. That's the first promotional position from the backseat. And then we have captains in the right front seat. That's, that's my position. And when I, when I say firefighter, I'm referring to all of them. So, um, Everyone's qualified to work on fire engines and ladder trucks. So the hook and ladder that of, you know, where there's two drivers, that kind of stuff, or just a regular service aerial, uh, which is a regular ladder truck, the big ladder on top. Everyone's qualified to do that. When it gets to the technical rescue team there to be part of the team, you have to have a series of classes that we, 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 in our institution, our agency, uh, we require eight classes. And uh, three of those classes are specializing in structural collapse. So uh, Oklahoma City bombing, New York uh, Trade Center, uh, uh, Pentagon, that type of structural collapse. We go through all the kind of training to search and rescue people out of those things, as well as we do confined space rescue, which could be anyone, anything from uh, homeless people 
living underground, having a fire underground in their little camp. You have to go in and rescue them from that and then put out the fire and search the area like drainage tunnels. Um, as crazy as that sounds, that's a fairly common occurrence in the city of San Diego. Uh, uh, trench rescue. So fortunately, because Cal OSHA has hammered down on the trenching and shoring industry because of so many fatalities, we don't have them too often, normally about one every two to three years. But a trench rescue where a construction worker or a person is in a trench excavation and then it's not shored properly and and it sloughs in, we're trained to get people out of that. Also in beach dig-ins, you know, when kids go dig in the beach, that type of thing. Uh, we do swift water rescue. So we do flood, flood and water rescue for the rivers and everything around that. Uh, our drainage, drainage is throughout the city. You know, when we get rain in San Diego, it's normally torrential type rain. Um, and people tend to hang out in the flood channels and they end up becoming victims. Normally those, they're, they're, they're just living there camping, you know. Um, and then uh, probably the big one that we do is uh, high angle, um, high angle and vehicle rescue. Those are the last two ones. And uh, the high angle, that's anywhere from cliffs in our local mountains to cliffs at the beach at night. We, the lifeguards do the cliff rescues in the daytime. We do them at night. And uh, we, we do all the buildings and ship and amusement park rescues by rope. So uh, we have two large attractions, the San Diego Zoo and SeaWorld in our city. And both of those have uh, gondola rides that go across their terrain. And when those things get stuck, uh, they, they call us and send us out there to climb the poles, traverse the wires, get to the cars and rescue the occupants and bring them down. So we do that kind of stuff as well as the window washers on the 50-story buildings, elevator shafts, uh, moving people from ships in the shipyard uh, to shore, uh, getting them out of the confined spaces inside ships. And then there's just the vehicle rescues. Uh, 90, 95% of the vehicle rescues are handled by the ladder trucks and engine companies where they just pop a door open and get someone out. But when it's really surgical and someone's really wrapped up inside mangled metal, that's, we get to scene and we do work and our work is very similar in that nature that we don't take over a scene by any means. We end up showing up as subject matter experts and we try to uh, accomplish our mission um, by, with, and through the forces at scene. So the, the regular service companies that are already there, we oftentimes will hand off our advanced equipment, our tools. And we'll guide them and instruct them like, hey, try this, try that. This is, you know, move that tool to this place. But uh, those advanced vehicle rescues, whether they're uh, heavy rescues involving trains, trolleys, uh, 18-wheel semis, buses, those, we go to those. Or if they're just uh, really bad passenger vehicle rescues, we'll end up at those too. So... Um, we do all that as well as large animal rescue. We rescue uh, horses and um, that from canyons. We end up flying them out by a helicopter hoist harness. Uh, believe it or not, horses get stuck too. And uh, we also do protester removal. So all these people that decide to shut down government buildings, chain themselves together, hang in front yeah. of shipping lanes, off bridges, we'll go remove those people and do it without them ever being able to touch us. 
What yeah, what's the threshold with that kind of stuff? Is it you know, the 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 mayor, the police chief says, Yep, they've crossed X threshold, broken whatever law, and now you're authorized to go out there and remove these people? Yeah, it, it's a man, it's a it's a real touchy subject. I've only done it a couple of times and it's uh, one of those things where it's normally a group such as the the last time I did it was anti meat eaters and they had shut down city hall <laughs> and they had chained themselves together around their neck and, and were wearing riot gear to protect themselves from being assaulted. And, uh, I just met up with the police sergeant and said, Hey, are these people Mirandized? Yes, they are Mirandized. Okay. So they've been all been read their rights. He says, yes, they've exercised their right to protest. Their protest was heard, it was organized. It's now a civil disobedience. And so um, once I clarify that they're actually under arrest after having been removed, those technically they're actually under arrest at that point in time. At that point, they're property of the state. So that's when you can actually remove them. But it's, it's, it's a legal process that you really have to pay attention to because you can't take away someone's right to protest. It has to yep. be finally deemed an illegal protest and that they're now a civil disturbance for anything like that to happen. Um, well, and I can't even imagine navigating that in this space today, right? Like everyone has an iPhone, they're videoing, and then you have to be a lawyer because the lawyers are going to look at it when once it's out there in the media or once it goes to court and like, it's you who's going to be on the line. Like you're going to be the guy who gets fried if you did something wrong. So how do you navigate that space? Is I mean, has it been an issue in recent times? Because it seems like things are quite tumultuous the past year or so. Well, we, we have not done it since the George Floyd incident. So since Black Lives Matter came out and did that, um, we've had Black Lives Matter in our town. They, they actually painted our fire station in the middle of their disturbances. Um, they... Uh, they have not done any of those activities to chain themselves up. However, it really doesn't change the fact that we're coming in after, uh, after the police have decided it's no longer a legal protest. So we do go through training for it and it's uh, two thirds of the training we go through are actually classroom legal training of what are the protesters rights? What can you do? What can't you do? You know, People always make jokes. Oh, why don't you just uh, pepper spray them? They'll, they'll leave. They'll, they'll come out of their stuff. Well, case law, that's already been done once. It didn't work out so well. <laughs> you know? So, you know, you, they, it's very simple. You have, to, you have to remove their devices from them without hurting them. And you're right. People are filming it and it's under scrutiny. So you have to train a lot. You have to really understand the obstacles that you're taking apart. And you have to be good with your tools. And it really comes down to just like anything else, you know, you're, you, you have to focus and make sure that your team understands that failing is not an option, that you have to train to play in the worst conditions. You have to actually be a master of your trade. You can't just wing it. It's not going to work. You know, if, if you don't, if you don't make it to the point where your competence is actually excellence, then you're going to end up eating a shit sandwich at some point. And kind of circling back to the training aspect. So I equate, you know, tentacle rescue is a lot to like weapons officers in the Air Force. Weapons officers go out to Nellis. They spend six months. They come back as experts and they're the instructors that teach the instructors how to teach everyone else. And they're your guys and gals when it comes to really the complex stuff. And how are we going to go take down 
near peer adversary X, Y, or Z, or whatever it might be. When, what is the timeline to go like, hey, you've now been selected to go to the technical rescue from that point to actually being fully qualified on the rig? Um, well, first, I think you have to have the mindset in our trade. And I like to tell this to people that if you ever think you've arrived, you haven't. Um, you're, you're never good enough. Um, never believe you're good enough. You know, always be self-reflective and look at how you can be better. Uh, you don't know everything. If you think you know everything, you don't. Um, we train a ton. As far as being selected, we, we don't have a selection process inside to get onto the team as a relief member. Uh, it's just an application and anyone can go out and get the training. Uh, the training is prohibitive. It's, it's roughly, if you were to do it out of pocket, you're going to spend anywhere between fifteen dollars to $20,000 out of pocket to get the training. Um, when the department sponsors you and you get it, it's basically on seniority. It's a civil service affair. So people get it based on seniority. And then if they come in, it's, it's up to the captains to make sure that, you know, these people have the skill sets that are necessary to be on the rig. Um, and the way we like to run it is we have a, we have a, uh, before we move them from the fire engine onto the heavy rescue, we have a routine that we've developed, uh, on with my partner captains over the years that we have set up 50 drills that we make sure that we cover every single skill set that everyone's supposed to know. Then we explain how all the, in all the concepts that we would uh, apply those skill sets. So every skill that they were exposed to through their training, we now show them different concepts and how they can be applied. And then we have several drills that are basically psychological drills where we're developing the mindset and uh, we call it the rescue mindset. And it's, it's a uh, mindset where someone has to be able to think in a non-linear thought pattern. And when I say that, it's, uh, you know, you're working on a complex problem alone without supervision. And as you do steps one, two, three, all of a sudden you have to transition over to step A and B of another part of the problem that you created. And then once you're done with B, you get back to four, four, five, six, and then, oh, now there's this new problem. I have to solve this problem before I continue. And if people can't work through that with composure and learn how to assess the situation, prioritize their tasks, prioritize the sequence of their events, remove the cancers and obstacles from their thought pattern or their logical conclusion of the problem that they're trying to solve uh, and then execute their plan, then they, they just don't work out and they don't end up fitting in. And then, like I said earlier, they become more of a liability than an asset. And we're looking for assets. We try to keep assets around. So good problem solvers with no quit attitude. Probably ties into what's like, what is the most challenging part of getting to that point? Is it the problem solving? Because I imagine there are a lot of guys out there and gals that, you know, they got the left hand, right hand monkey skills and the brute force strength to get through some of this stuff. But it seems like the problem solving, that's got to be one of the most challenging aspects of that job, I would imagine. It, absolutely, it is. It's, it's the mental part of it that is the hardest part. It's hardest to learn. And it, it takes, an individual putting themselves in those situations with various problems that they don't know how to solve and seeing how they can solve it on their own. Um, I, I like to tell the people that I work with the most valuable piece of equipment on the rig 
is the people. And, you know, we, we owe it to each other to, to uh, develop each other and with problem solving ability, because it truly is a team environment. It's, I, I may be the captain, I may be the rescue group supervisor, but if one of my people comes to me and says, hey, this plan's not going to work, I'm going to listen and I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to take input. If they see something that's not safe, if my primary plan or my secondary plan or my tertiary plan is not clicking, it's not going to work, I want to know um, because it's, it's one of those, uh, you know, the strength of the wolf is the pack and the strength of the pack is the wolf type things. Like we, we, none of us can do it alone. We all need each other and we all have to be good problem solvers. And then we all, ha all have to have the ability to be uh, probably mediocre at best in all those trades. And then individuals will end up rising into different specialties. One guy might be really good at structural collapse. One guy may be the best rescue swimmer we have. One guy may be the instructor for large vehicle rescue. Somebody may be uh, a, a rope specialist, but when we start bringing it all together and we start you know, training each other and, and focusing on making each other better and challenging each other, that's when everything comes together. I want to jump all the way kind of back to that initial foray into the catalysts into pursuing, you know, social media and getting out there, right, which is the fire. So the fire service, I imagine they mentioned there were some things that fell short in that fire. One, you know, the hose is not reaching, having a tough time getting water. There's traffic arriving on the scene or getting to the scene. And obviously, those fires, it doubles in size like every minute, right? I know it probably depends on the combustibles that are inside that space. But is there a process that happens after the fact where there's a hot wash that you go through and look at like, yeah, we didn't get water on the fire by X time, whatever the goal might be or whatever it is to dissect that process and figure out, hey, how can we adjust the team? What can we do differently? Or there's just too many variables to handle. No, absolutely. Um, the, we call it the after action review, AAR. And we get together and uh, as soon as everything's normalized, you know, the, the companies get together, the company officers speak about their initial actions, what they saw, what they did, why they made a decision. And it's a learning process for everyone involved and everyone has a voice there. So, um, yeah, we do that. And then in, inside my team personally, uh, you know, we, we use the basic concept that's came from air operations, which is crew resource management, um, which kind of parallels in, but we, we make sure that we do those AARs and, you know, we, we try to learn from every event. We, every time we go out the door, if to any incident of significance, there's an AAR, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I was kind of curious too, like, it, it sounds like doing it right where the rank kind of comes off in the debrief is what we like to say, at least in the fighter pilot world, because it doesn't matter if it's the Colonel who's sitting across the table, you know, if he didn't meet his contracts, like we're going to dig into why he didn't meet his contracts, right? Maybe it was my bet, my poor briefing, maybe, it was a lack of capabilities or something wasn't clear in the game plan, but everyone gets held to the same standard when it comes down to it. Cause really you're trying to drive home. What is the causal factor? I mean, you know, what is the root cause? What are causal factors in this so that we can make it better? We can prevent it from happening the next time. Absolutely. And um, you know, it's one of those things that it's a great opportunity to readdress SOGs and SOPs. And you know, for, 
those that are listening and don't understand what I'm saying, a standard operating guideline or a standard operating procedure. The difference being a procedure has to be adhered to, a guideline is a recommendation. Uh, our fire department works mostly on guideline, however, uh, because the fire ground is so dynamic. Um, fire, when we say fire ground, we, that, that refers to any incident, whether it's medical, uh, fire, or rescue or hazardous material. It's still the same thing. But it's such a dynamic, unpredictable and uh, situation with so many variables that uh, we're guideline based. And, you know, it's one of those things that you cannot anticipate all the problems you're going to see in, in your career. Um, but some of them do come back. You know, there, there's a, a large portion of, of bread and butter. We call them bread and butter jobs that will come back and they get really easy. You know, the, the old can of corn saying, <laughs> you, know, that, you know, that's an easy one. You know, the, the apartment fire on the first floor, you know, 400 square feet, fire coming out of bedroom, nobody inside. And that, that takes about 15 minutes to take care of. And then five minutes to talk about, and that's it. <laughs> comes with the, comes with experience. The, um, <laughs> I can, I can only imagine just the variety and things that you have seen over the course of those 30 years. What is like the past year, right? There's a lot of noise out there, social media, the news. I can't, I don't even talk about law enforcement. I can't imagine being a cop these days. Is the fire service struggling with finding qualified applicants to go out there and join? Our city is, our city is struggling to find, um, qualified applicants. Our our city is struggling to find the best applicants because we're not well compensated. Okay. You know, we're surrounded by Orange County, Los Angeles County, LA city. You know, those, those agencies are making an incredible amount of money. And then San Diego city inside San Diego County, we're not compensated. We're at the bottom of the compensation. It, we're out of the 18 cities in San Diego County, we're at 18 in almost every pay rate. So we have an incredible turnover. We've lost the, the belly of our firefighters, meaning the, the firefighters that are the eight to 12 year firefighters that should be promoting to engineer. We've lost them. They've gone to other agencies. And so it's hard to replace those people. So we're having a shortage uh, uh, in the engineer rank. And then we're having a shortage in the captain rank because of our promotional processes. So it's not flowing well anymore. So we're short in all positions because of that. Um, well, it's funny. So the struggle in the fighter pilot world, right? I mean, I got out of active duty at the 12 year point. Like how long does it take to make a you know, 12 year fighter pilot? Like it takes 12 years. Same. How long yeah. does it take to make an engineer with eight, 10 years of experience, eight or 10 years? Like you can't just make it up. Um, and there's a multitude of reasons why the Air Force is struggling when it comes to keeping people in the ranks. Honestly, this past year, I mean, I watched a lot of my buddies who were planning on getting out who did not get out because of COVID. And now that the world, the pipeline is, the spigot's turning back on, they're bailing. And I just saw the retention, the bonus take rate for pilots because that's kind of been a staple. And it's read across the board of take rates. And again, it's it's a multitude of reasons of why that happens. But where I was going with this is, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Andy Stump, the Cleared Hot podcast and Mike Glover. And one of the points they've made it a couple different times on separately and together is, you know, in the last hundred years, this has really been the first time that we've outsourced our safety 
to other people. Like nowhere, nowhere in the history of time have we been able to pick up the phone and call 911 or out in the middle of nowhere on a cell phone and call 911 and people are going to show up there and save you. So it, it kind of lends me a little bit of concern where you start hearing a lot of, you know, fire, law enforcement, things like that, where they are getting tapped out because people are not staying. Or really, we had, tor- you know, I go, another thing is we go through, tor- you know, we had tornadoes rip through uh, just two miles south of my house about a mi- uh, month and a half ago. And you think about that, the county probably has four, five ambulances, like, in a, in, a, in a mass casualty event, like that's that's tapped out instantaneously, but you've outsourced and you're depending upon it. So it's an interesting thought process, at least where I've found myself changing and thinking about things a little bit differently because you've always assumed that you can pick up the phone and someone's going to show up and help you out, but that might not necessarily always be the case. And that's my concern in the future. You know, it, it absolutely has gotten to that point. Um, I think the 911, uh, 911 changed the world. A three-digit number to send someone to help you or solve your problem. First off, I think it, it made people lose track of what a real problem is. I think uh, I think that uh, Andy and Mike are 100% right, you know, outsourcing your personal protection. You know, you need to, as a human being, you need to be able to be self-reliant and solve a lot of your own problems. They used to say that the average person would dial 911 once in their life. You know, we have people dialing several times a day. You know, that's, there's a lot of abuse out there. Um, As far as running, running out of people to respond, I think law enforcement's heading into a real problem of having qualified, competent law enforcement officers. They've been so defamed by the media and it's horrible because they stand in between the bad and the good and are willing to be that line, you know, they, the vaunted blue line, the thin blue line, they have saved so many people. And I can hardly find a law enforcement officer that wants to come on my podcast. Now it's, oh. it's so difficult. Um, I have, I have a lot of friends, uh, that are in law enforcement. Several of my, uh, close friends ha- are involved in the tactical units on law enforcement and they've, uh, been on my podcast, but it's getting to the point where I can't find someone that wants to be on. So if, if there's a listener out there that's a law enforcement officer that wants to be on a podcast, hey, hit, hit me up. Yeah, same. Okay. Yeah, I would love to have you on and and talk about it. Um, but society has changed and public public safety, public service has taken a big hit. Um, and I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I don't know if we've reached the, the, the far side of that pendulum swinging yet. I don't know. And, you know, the fire service has always been defunded. It's, uh, it's always been, uh, hey, that's an insurance policy that we can't afford to pay. And as a result, the fire service has always added more missions to its profile to justify its existence. And this has been going on since the structure fire peak of the 70s hit and, and has dwindled down over the years. Yeah. Um, and so to this day, the fire service is the agency that gets, you know, the city administrators sit in their chairs and go, hey, we have a new problem. Who's going to handle that? Oh, I know. We're going to send it to the fire department, you know. And, you know, so 
we have all these different missions, kind of like I just said about technical rescue, all the things we do that people have no idea we do. Right. You know, you know, I mean, who would think that like, you know, the fire department's going to send eight people in a helicopter in a helicopter out to get your horse out of a Canyon. Well, Hey, in San Diego County, that's, that's what we do. I've never been a cop. Uh, I have several friends that are cops. I've talked to them about it and, you know, again, I go to some of the stuff I've listened to some guys I respect Mike Glover and Andy stuff would be two of them. And I think they made a good point of, you know, it comes down to training, right? There are, there are definitely issues everywhere. Every, every organization has bad apples, like the hands down, right? Those are going to exist. And that's not to jump down the, the politics route, but one of like the big picture broad brush thing is like, if you just think about like a seal team, or a unit that's rotating in and out doing high, high tempo operations and bad guy land. They're spending six months deployed, but prior to that deployment, they're spending 18 months doing all sorts of training. Like, I don't know what a cop gets. A cop goes to the Academy and then maybe depending on the department has six weeks or a year, I'm guessing riding along that supervised and they're cut loose. They probably shoot twice a year plus whatever they want to do on their own. And then you throw them in a life or death situation. I don't care who you are. You're up against really poor odds of performing well, right? Like you're not getting those constant reps and constant stress. Uh, so it's like the opposite. Like you need to spend more money on training and allocate more resources is my opinion, but no one cares about my opinion, I guess. Well, I agree with you hundred percent. First off, like as far as cop shooting, I think the average AR enthusiast puts more rounds down range per month than the average police officer. And they're better shots. Um, the average guy like you or I spent, probably spends more time in a, in a jujitsu gym rolling around than the average cop does with combatives. Uh, they, they don't get the time doing what they're supposed to be doing. And they're, they also are expected to solve all these domestic problems and intervene in all these disputes between the neighbors, between husband and wife. And I mean, those things they escalate so quickly. I mean, in, in your own family, you end up in arguments with your, your wife, your children, your parents, and they, right. they become heated so quick. Imagine being an arriving officer that's been sent there to, to settle that dispute. What kind of training do you get to actually do that? And this, this silly notion that's out there of like, oh, we're going to send qualified counselors out to these events Talk about someone, you know, like some five foot six, 110 pound woman getting a screwdriver in her eye. Yeah. That's come, that's coming America. If, if yep. you want to, if you want to replace your law enforcement with those people, you're going to see some ugliness because those, those heated events become very dispute, very uh, violent real quick. Well, it goes back to that whole concept, right? I think we don't really know what problems are. I, I mean, most people in America don't know what problems are until you go see how other people live in other worlds. I've never worried about someone kicking the door down and dragging me out in the middle of the night because I disagreed with something they said and I publicized it, right? Or I just was from the wrong clan or whatever it might be. And out the door I go and I'm me and my family are going to get murdered, right? Like that stuff happens still in countries across the world. And that's an extreme scenario. But the fact is, there are a lot of people out there who want to do bad things and they're not going to respect your space, your feelings, your thoughts, your property, your life, because they value their needs over you. Right. And that's the cops are there to keep the rules in force. And it goes back to, I mean, I said, you know, SEALs, Delta guys, I mean, fighter pilots, the same way. Like you spend 
18 months, two years doing every single day, flying, doing sims, briefing, going through scenarios, building new scenarios, training, going out, integrating with other platforms. So that when you go do fight, it's a new dynamic. They're new variables, but you know, you have tools in your tool bag for you to be able to react. And it comes back to that training. You know, if you just went and learned how to fly and then you go into combat, like it's not going to work out too well for you. No, no. And and that's true. That's true in our trade as well that, you know, we, we train every day. We put a couple, two, two to four hours of manipulative training and readdressing all of our un, un, infrequent events and tools and methodologies daily. We do that because we have to, because, hey, the next time it happens, it's going to be in an austere environment and it's not going to be easy. The lights aren't going to be on. The weather's not going to be 72 and blue. And uh, there's going to be people's lives in peril. So uh, training, training, training. You, you can't get enough. In law enforcement, fire, military, you just can't. And you obviously, know, that's the challenge of the police, right? Is the fact that you know, it's not like the fire service where if you're not on call, like you're in the fire station, so you can train, right? Until the call comes out and you go. But cops are showing up, they get the brief and then they're out on patrol. Like there's just, you either need more of them to be able to afford the opportunity to take down days for training days or what? Again, I don't have the answers, but it's interesting times. And that's down, that is down. We went down the rabbit hole on that one for sure. Yeah. Well, to close that one out, if I were president and I was <laughs> writing all these executive orders of what I would do, I would put uh, 20% of, of their work week goes to development of their non-lethal combatives and counseling. It's that yeah. simple. So one out of every five work days, they, they, they shoot, they do their lethal, they do their non-lethals and they go to conflict resolution training. So 20% of their time. It's the old adage, right? Like everyone has a, a plan until they get punched in the face and you react differently. You weren't expecting that, or it's going to, you, I know like, I was thinking different things and probably I didn't anticipate that it would have been. It's the same deal. It translates across the board, but having the training and having the tools and the tool bag to fall back on when that happens to adjust the game plan or build the game plan, hopefully you already got it built. I think it's vital. And the fact of the matter is like you have to have time available where you can go out there and train and do it. And I think that's a disservice that's done to law enforcement across the country for that fact. Absolutely. Everybody has to have slides in their Rolodex, you yeah. know, situations they've been in to refer to. And if they're not real, they have to be simulated. Um, and, you know, all these professions nowadays, they're, they're very fortunate. They have YouTube. There's, you know, because like everyone has cell phones. So, man, there's thousands of, of events out there on YouTube that you can review daily. But they still need to be compensated for their time and have programs offered to them. I know that, uh, I think it's, uh, Mitch Aguiar. He does, uh, adopt a cop BJJ. Okay. You know, he, 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 uh, does, he, he does fundraising to send cops to jujitsu training to yeah, non-lethal. It's, it's huge. They need it. So, but yeah, we definitely went down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. As a fire captain, what, what's the toughest part of your job? Oh, wow. Talk about a question that getting punched in the face. Boom. Everyone's uh, got a plan, right? Until they get punched in the face. Yeah. Um, I think the toughest part of being a fire captain 
there's a couple parts to that answer. One, discretion, knowing to have discretion, uh, knowing how to uh, resolve the issues that you're presented with daily because you are a manager, you're mid-level management, uh, you live with your peers and you have to have that relationship with your peers to be able to operate with them and the uh, to, to lead them. And at the same time, you have to uphold the norms and values and policies of the agency employing you. Um, in addition to that, and it kind of ties in, uh, earning your bugles, that uh, doing the hard right instead of the easy wrong, even though it's going to uh, have people think differently of you, that, uh, and, and it's, it's not often that, that, that hard right is to get people to be more aggressive. It's, it's, uh, taking the side that's not always seen as team-based, not always having your guys back. You have to see the big picture, you know, there, there is right and wrong and, um, you have to know what is right and be able to go that direction. Sometimes you're going to lose popularity over it, whether it's uh, training more, um, not going, taking your guys to coffee. It sounds like uh, silly issues, but, uh, or, you, you know, uh, taking the civilian side of a complaint, you know, that type of thing, you know, validating people. How do you manage that? And how do you deal with the fact when one, you might take a stance or, and you might drive the team down a certain path against what they want to do because yeah, you sided with the civilian complaint. So how do you manage that? And then the, I guess the unique piece is your bunk is probably three feet away from everyone else's. Maybe you got your own room, but I mean, you're in there like 24 hours a day living with these guys. How do you manage that? I think the best way to manage it is, is from the beginning. Um, you know, I've, I've found as a leader and as a manager, being proactive instead of reactive has been the best thing. Um, I have not come across too many people that have come into service that want to do a bad job. And so I sit down with my people about a week after I get them assigned to me. And I, and I, I say, okay, we've had our first week together. Did you enjoy working? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, well, go on your days off. Hey, when you come back, I want to sit down with you. And I want you to give me your expectations as, as your leader. I want to, I want to hear what you expect out of me because I'm going to meet, I'm going to meet your expectations. And not only that, I want to know where you want to be in three, five and 10 years, because I want to facilitate that for you. I want to help your career. And they take that down and they think about it. They think, wow, okay, well, someone's investing in me. And then I say, at the same time, I want to sit down with you and I want to let you know what my expectations are. And when we get back and I, I've heard everything from them and I say, okay, and I take my notes and I know what I need to do to meet their needs. I sit down and I go over the, the uh, review form with them and it's a subjective objective review. So I sit with them and I say, I want you to understand what I want to rate you as an outstanding employee but I can't do that without you understanding what outstanding in my opinion is. So I want you to know what my opinion is and all these categories, we're going to go over them and we're going to answer all your questions. And if it's still for you, then it's up to you to meet those objectives. 
the the beauty of it is that when people look at that and they say, I'm being given an opportunity to be an outstanding employee and rated by my supervisor as outstanding. It's a goal for them that's, that's discernible and they go after it. Not only that, but an outstanding employee allows a supervisor to also be friends. It's like raising kids. The relationship changes when, uh, when everyone understands where their, their, uh, their limits are, what their expectations are. And so when you get those people to say, I, I'm doing exactly what you said and I, I, I buy in, I agree, it changes from being in charge to being the, the peer leader. And when the peer leader is doing that, you have an amazing relationship. And we, uh, you know, something that came out of it's just a, it, it's a, it's a saying that came out of Echelon Front by buddy Jason Gardner, relationships equal mission success. And it's true. And so if you don't build those relationships ahead of time and you don't guide the way and live the standard that you expect of your, of your subordinates, then they won't respect you. They won't follow you. And then you're going to have all those problems. So in the long winded answer, um, instead of being reactive, be proactive, build it into your, into your life. Yeah. Kevin, I think that's really poignant. And I think that translates across the board, no matter what career field you find yourself in, because that's, it's easier said than done, but it's pretty simple when it comes down to it. I just lay out the expectations. People know where everyone stands. They know where the line is and they can adjust from there. So I think that's a good way to kind of wrap up, but I would like to ask you, and as I ask all my other guests, if you found like 15, 16 year old Kevin walk on the street, is there anything you would tell him advice, something to change, do something different or keep it the same? I think the biggest thing would be advice. And that is, I have regrets. I have regrets in life. And I don't want to go into them. They're personal. But the pain of regret lives in you forever. So when you're given an opportunity, if there's something you want to do and you're just scared to do it or you're hesitant to do it, think about if you're going to regret it. Because you get, you get one really fast ride on this planet. And is, even though I've got 52 trips around the sun, man, I tell you what, I remember the 70s, 80s, 90s, the thousands, the tens, now we're in the 20s. It's gone fast. And I have regrets about windows of opportunity that have came and closed in my life that I will never get back. They hurt. Fortunately, they're not about relationships. Um, I've been married happily to the love of my life. I have four amazing kids, but there are things I wanted to do that I never did. So live forward, be bold, go after what you want in life. Don't hold yourself to someone else's opinions. Don't live with any regret. Live like your hair's on fire every day. Got one life. I think that's sage advice. So. That regret, it's personal. It's in there deep. I think about it often, but I'm doing everything I can now. And that's, that's why I'm reinventing myself. 
Yeah. So I, I know we're going to wrap it up, but that's another aspect, right? You're going to round out your fire service career. The lens is like, where can people find you and what you're doing? Because you're not just saying I'm done and I'm out. You're constantly growing and improving. So where can people find you? And when they find you, what can they find? A lot of finding. Well, um, on Instagram, I'm at uh, tier underscore one underscore athletes. And uh, on uh, podcasts, I'm at tier one talks. Both those have links to emails. Um, that's, that's where I am. And uh, my tier one athletes, that was something that has organically turned into relationships, um, meeting people like you, others across the country of similar mind. And, and uh, that's going to be my fifties my and my sixties uh, of reinventing my tribe, reinventing my life and continuing to live. Um, so uh, that's where I am. Um, those that want to be uh, guests on podcast, hit me up. If you want to just uh, read, read what I dump out of my brain, my workouts, you know, Follow, follow me at tier one athletes on Instagram and, and, uh, it'll be fun. You'll see a lot of people, um, from across the internet that, uh, follow as well. Awesome. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Thanks for sharing your story and just enjoy chatting with you today. Thanks, John. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Um, uh, I, I, I really mean that it's, uh, being on the other side of the microphone, uh, is my comfort zone being on this side. Man, I tell you what, it's, uh, I feel like I'm a, a woman going through menopause. I got hot flashes and just feeling all funny and stuff. So thank you for putting me in my uncomfortable zone. Yeah, right. We're always growing. Awesome. Kevin, look forward to uh, chatting more and seeing what's next, man. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, wherever you're listening, leave a rating or review. That helps the podcast out. And if you're looking for some additional content, you can start over at theafterburnpodcast.com. Again, that's theafterburnpodcast.com. You can find the new blog section. Again, that first post being acronyms that we cover here on the podcast, as well as links to Patreon, YouTube, and much more. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.